Out of all the stories that I share on this channel, my favorites are definitely the exclusives, the ones you can only find here in the swamp. Today is going to be a very long compilation of five of those exclusive stories. These are all based in state parks or the woods in some manner, and some of them might even just scare you. You may have heard some in the past, and maybe all of them are new to you. Anyway, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. Now, be sure to hit that like button and subscribe if you're new. Also, if you don't know, I recently started streaming on Twitch two to three times a week. So if you're a fan of scary games, funny reactions, and just getting to know me more, definitely check that out. You can find the link to follow me over there in the description. by Kanye West on the floor. You play with it if you want. Oh, 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 oh. You know what I got it? Fresh out of high school, my friends and I decided to take one last trip together before we all split up to go to college. The Pacific Crest Trail was the destination. A few nights of drinking, hiking, and camping was exactly what we needed together. Ian, my boyfriend, picks me up from my house. I've never been to the Pacific Crest Trail, so he tries describing its beauty the best he can. <laughs> Babe, you're gonna love it, I promise. Nothing but fresh air and wilderness. We will be one with nature. I'm not so sure Mother Nature would approve of the ungodly amount of alcohol you have in the cooler. Well, what about this? Ian pulls out a sandwich-sized Ziploc bag of weed. I know Mother Nature would approve of this. She grew it. You've been holding out on me, I said, snatching the bag from his grip. I open it and take a deep breath inhaling the familiar aroma. It's a long ride. Might as well roll one up for the road. Sounds good. I'll call the others and get them to meet us at the location. Ian connects his phone on his Jeep radio, putting on his 80s hair metal playlist. I light the freshly rolled joint, and we settle in for a road trip. We decided to meet up at the Bridge of Gods. The Bridge of the Gods sits at the convergence of the historic Columbia River Highway State Trail, three National Historic Trails, and the Pacific Crest Trail. We walk over the bridge together, being extra careful because there is no shoulder on the narrow bridge, and we must share with cars and trucks. We make it across with no problem and hike for a while until we decide to go off trail to find a spot to set up camp by the river. Three tents between six people, Nova and his girlfriend Tessa, the twins Sadie and Katie, and finally myself and Ian. I sit back with a black cherry white claw and take in the beautiful, beautiful surroundings. The sky let out an orange glow as the sun sank behind the jagged mountains. 
the mountains came down to meet the cold, untamed river. Nova and Ian began to make a fire before the night came. As the darkness falls, the alcohol flows. The flicker of the flame lights the night. We all reminisce about high school and talk about all that we would like to do for our future. Ian gets quiet and stares off into the darkness that is the river. What's up, Ian? I ask. I think I can see the outline of a boat floating not far off the bank. We all look in that direction, Ian pointed. Yeah, I think I see it too, Katie said. Nova walks over to his backpack and pulls something out. He twirls it in his hand and looks at it for a moment, before putting it in the direction of what we think is the boat. Is that a gun? Put that up, Nova. I spoke. Chill out, Brittany. It's just a flare gun, Ian said as he grabbed my hand to calm me. Nova pulls the trigger, and a trail of light streaks out towards the boat. It lights up the immediate area around the dark outline. It was a boat. Not just our mind playing tricks on us in the dark. Two people stood in the flat-bottom boat, looking our way. They wore orange hoodies that hid their face. Oh my god, people are watching us, Sadie said. Get the hell out of here, you damn weirdos, Nova shouted. Nova and Ian began picking up rocks on the riverbank and throwing them at the boat. After a few moments, we could hear the engine start and drive away. We finally get over being freaked out. We did our best to put the incident behind us and continue drinking and partying throughout the night before eventually passing out in our tents. I woke the following day to a commotion outside. I unzipped the tent and dragged myself out. The sun hit my eyes and I winced as a sharp pain shot through my head. Drinking obscene amounts of alcohol seems like a great idea until the next day. When you have to wake up with a splitting headache and you get a queasy gut. I see Ian with his hands clasped on top of his head, standing in front of a flat-bottom boat and sat on the riverbank on our campsite. Ian, what's wrong? What's going on? I ask. These assholes from last night, they docked our boat here and stole all of our supplies while we were sleeping. Nova walks up behind us. I'm having trouble finding the trail. I have some food and water stashed away in my tent. Let's refuel and go look like a group. After eating, with no supplies... We decided to cut our trip short, pack up, and look for the trail we strayed from to get to this riverbank. Let's split up, Nova said. We can go in pairs of two. Try not to stray too far from the others, so if you find the trail, you can alert the others by yelling. Nova and Tessa enter the woods, Sadie and Katie enter about 20 yards away, and Ian and I do the same. Ian grabs my hand and he leads the way. We say nothing to each other, only the sound of twigs breaking and brush under our feet fill the silence. I think I see something, Ian said. I look around to try and see what he sees, and that's when I notice it. I think we both figure out what it was at the same time by the terrified look we gave each other. To our left, a man in a bright orange hunting hoodie stood several yards away. He didn't move. He just looked at us. A camouflaged ski mask cover his face. He didn't move even when we ran into the opposite direction of him. Even without being chased, we ran as fast as we could, leading to me tripping over some undergrowth and falling. My extended hands were the only thing stopping me from slamming my face into the unforgiving ground. A sharp pain shot through my wrist into my elbow. I let out a yelp in pain. I'm not sure if it's broken, but I know it's at least sprained. 
the price I had to pay to save my face from colliding with the forest floor. Ian quickly comes to my side, helping me up and inspecting the hand. I held it close to my body. He flexed the wrist, sending a shockwave of pain through my arm, causing me to jerk my hand away. Behind him, I noticed some movement. It was one of the men in the orange hoodie stepping out from behind some trees. I point a shaky finger behind Ian at the man. Ian glances over his shoulder to see what has me so shaken. We'll check this out later. Right now we have to run. Ian grabs my elbow, careful not to touch my hurt wrist. We make a hard left and quickly make our way to what is hopefully the trail we came in on. We break through the trees, but it, it's not the trail. It's a small clearing. It looks like someone has recently been here. A still smoldering fire set in the center of the small clearing. Sadie and Katie break through the brush into the clearing a few feet away from where we came in, followed by Nova and Testa shortly to the right of where we came in. We all share stories, and they all sound very similar. These men funneled us to this spot, Katie said. Why do they want us here? What, what do they want? Nova responded. Well, you did shoot a flare at them, I say to Nova. The creeps were floating there watching us. What was I supposed to do? Stop fighting. It'll get us nowhere. We need to figure out how to get back to the trail, Sadie interrupted. We looked around the clearing. It was roughly about half the size of an NFL football field. There was nothing out of the ordinary other than the smoldering pile of coals left behind. Let's turn around, together, and enter the woods and search for the trail. It has to be close, Ian said. We began to walk towards the section of woods we had entered the clearing through, and several of the men with orange hoodies and camouflage masks stepped out of the tree line. We turned as a group and began running in the opposite direction. We got halfway to the other side of the clearing before there were more men wearing the same orange hunting hoodies and camouflage masks stepping out. More emerged from the tree line surrounding us. I'm pretty sure there were 12 of them in total. Some of them had rifles in hand. Our group huddles together as it looked like these hunters were slowly closing in around us. Two hunters grab the twins, Sadie and Katie, and begin to drag them away, kicking and screaming. Ian and Nova run towards the two hunters that grab the twins. Nova throws a punch that connects with the hunter's chin and drops him to the ground. Nova grabs Sadie by the hand to help her up when a loud boom fills the air. The unexpected explosion temporarily disorients me. My ears ring. I look around confused about what just happened and where the explosion came from. I hear Sadie let out a terrified scream. I look to see her coated in blood and Nova lying on the ground beside her. Ian turns around running away from the scene unfolding before us. The look of fear in his face let me know exactly what had just happened. One of the hunters with a rifle had shot Nova. Ian took about two steps before another shot rang out. Blood spray came out of the side of Ian's head like a lawn sprinkler. Ian drops mid-stride, pulls her into the nearest tree line, and I hush her violent screams. No additional words are needed as we began to both sprint away from the chaos. I feel terrible about leaving Sadie and Katie to die. But any other action than what I took would have led to all of our deaths. I could hear the hunters scrabbling after us. At least, that's what was running through my mind at that moment. Tessa and I ran full speed for what felt like miles. My legs burned, my lungs hurt, and I would not dare to slow down. To my relief, we stumbled upon the trail. I look around to regain my sense of direction. The bridge is this way, I yelled to Tessa, and we began sprinting again. We ran to the bridge, where we flagged down a car, 
and they called the emergency number to alert the police. I was frantic trying to explain to the officer what I saw, that we ran off leaving our friends to die. Tessa could only weep. She tried to tell her version, but she couldn't get the words out. Tessa was physically shaking, and instead of words, vomit was the only thing that came from her mouth. Several hours had passed, and the sun was starting to set when the officers found my friends. The hunters had erected two wooden crosses that Sadie and Katie hung from. Their abdomens sliced open, and the twins were connected by their intestines tied together. Their guts decorated the wooden structure they hung from like a set of gory Christmas lights. Ian and Nova lay at the foot of the crosses. I don't know the reason behind the gruesome slaughter of my friends, but I do know I'll never revisit the Pacific Crest Trail. Hello Swamp, I've been a fan for a long time and knew you had to hear this. A few weeks ago my cousin from Alabama disappeared and yesterday they found his body. We weren't close, but his brother went missing last year and his parents couldn't handle going through his things. Mom and I flew out there to help and found some crazy stuff on his computer. He posted two audio messages to the park's website, both of which were immediately removed but the files were still on his laptop. Honestly, I don't know which is more disturbing, but I can tell you one thing. Nate was no actor. I've transcribed everything in hopes you might read it. Thanks for the amazing work you do. Keep it up. Whoa, hold on. Okay, it's working now. <clears throat> Hello, my name is Nate. I'm 26 and I've been a park ranger in Alabama for almost a year. If you're hearing this, I'm either dead or missing. Hopefully, dead. I recorded this message three days ago, but didn't make it back in time to cancel the upload. This is a confession, a warning, and a farewell. Please don't look for me. I was the black sheep in my family. There's no excuse or trauma to blame. My parents were great. My brother... My older brother, Eric, was not a bully. I'm just a lazy klutz, if I'm being honest. And why not? There's no reason to lie. Most people won't believe a word of it anyway. Well, I, I barely do. It's important you understand I'm not a paranoid loon locked in a basement. My world revolves around logic and facts. I never believed in Santa or thought any sort of monster was under the bed. Not even once. This is so you understand... I'm not exaggerating. I don't scream ghost when a door slams. I don't see things from the corner of my eye. Each denial you're about to have, I have had myself. Each question you're about to ask, I have asked. I'm going to start at the beginning, but even then, it may not be enough. That's okay. You can believe me later. If you ever find yourself lost in the woods, something you learn here just might save your life. It began in April of 21. My drinking was out of control, and I was on thin ice with my boss and girlfriend. It felt like I was past the point of no return, idly waiting for the end. Looking back, it sounds pathetic. I should have stopped drinking. I should have apologized to Jen when it mattered. We would have... Well, shoulda, coulda, woulda, am I right? Let's put aside the lies I told to continue drinking the focus on the key details. 
As you can see, I'm a straight shooter. I'm not here to mess around, so I'll admit, I deserve to get fired. Bartending is a horrible career for a budding alcoholic, and I'm shocked it didn't happen sooner. Unfortunately, drunk Nate couldn't understand that, and he made a scene. Normally, if someone breaks a window and steals a $600 bottle of scotch, police are contacted. When you live in nowhere, Alabama, parents are called and money is exchanged. Unfortunately, it was the last straw for Jen. My stuff was packed and waiting for me when I finally stumbled home. Not that I remember, that's just what I learned upon waking up in my childhood room. These events were what led me to my exceedingly fragile sobriety. If I didn't want to spend life asking, do you want fries with that, I had to work with my brother. No one else would take me. Park Ranger life suited Eric. He was made for the outdoors. Me? Not so much. But it meant a place to live for the summer. They like having staff on site for the busy season. Though people with families are generally displeased with the idea. A few white lies and blatant acts of nepotism later, I was starting my first day on the job. I was exactly 14 days sober when Eric gave me the grand tour. And I do mean grand. We barely covered our territory before quitting time. The whole first week was dedicated to learning my way around. He didn't start easing me into the weird stuff until the second week. And that, my friends, is where the story really begins. Remember, at this point I'm still barely functioning alcoholic, desperately resisting temptation every second. And I didn't play it off well. Eric saw me struggling and did his best to help. He tried to distract me with shop talk. I was expected to know a few basics, and even he was bored. It didn't seem unreasonable to think he would stretch a few details to get my attention. Until then, my lessons consisted of which hikes and berries were dangerous. Now, it was what to do when someone goes missing. Not if, mind you, but when. How often do you think people go missing in a state park? Not lost, but missing, as in never seen again. Because I thought two per year was an extreme guess, but it's insanely naive. Last year, in our park alone, 138 people vanished. It was hard to wrap my head around. That's a massive number. How could so many disappear in one place without being all over the news? Well, a couple things contribute to this, but the answers are far from satisfying. Our statistics are nothing compared to the bigger parks, which would make sense if those places were getting the expected attention. But they're not. Some of their numbers are triple ours, yet there's hardly a word to be found. There's a surprising number of reasons people won't report a disappearance, but those with active warrants or lacking citizenship are the most common. Personally, I prefer jail or deportation, but to each their own. The point is, even if we ignore those, there's more than enough to justify an investigation. You'll learn the rest as we go. I have much to say in precious little time. Eric saw my skepticism and showed me the lost and found cabin. Some of the stuff in there dates to the 1970s. That's 50 years of missing people. Inside, he went to the more recent finds and opened a bin labeled D-Hill 719. It contained reports from the Dillon Hill disappearance. That July, a family of four drove up from Montgomery for a weekend of camping. Their son was nine and the girl was six. They checked in on a Sunday morning and chose the campsite closest to the welcome center. Families always do it because it feels safer. On the third day, Mike Hill rushed into the office, 
frantic, saying his son disappeared. He and his wife were adamant Dylan vanished. He wasn't abducted, he didn't wander off, he vanished. Sherry was preparing lunch while Mike watched the kids. They were never out of sight until Dylan ducked behind the tree of a particular dense area. Even before his sister caught up, Mike was on his feet. When interviewed, he said it was like the darkness of the thicket that initially bothered him. There were dense patches everywhere, but none so dark as where his son had entered. Over the next few weeks, park rangers assisted with search and rescue operations while doing their best to comfort the grieving family, but they knew it was too late. The ones who seem to vanish into thin air are never really found. You probably think that I thought that the parents were responsible and coached their daughter to lie, right? It's technically possible, but the kid was six. I read the transcript from her interviews, and kids aren't that good at lying. Even if one could keep a straight face, they couldn't handle a convoluted story, especially not for several weeks under intense pressure. When asked if she or her brother had met anyone else at the park, she claimed someone with backwards arms and long feet stood outside their tent the night before. Eventually, it was determined that she saw a man, but her imagination invented a monster after losing Dylan. It seemed like a reasonable explanation until I heard similar reports of things from other guests. It's not always a kid, and there aren't always creature sightings, but when there are, it's always the same description. People from all over the globe have described an emaciated animal with long, canine-like feet, no hair, and strangely bent arms or possibly wings, but I'm jumping ahead a little. I don't believe a word about monsters. I thought it was a gag for noobs. My first personal experience was two weeks later when a woman went missing. It was June 5th, and I had just moved into a staff cabin the week before. Being sober was still a challenge but there were whole hours I didn't think about drinking. Having my own place helped immensely, but Bethany Anderson almost pushed me clear off the wagon. This is what made me understand lives were resting in my hands if I missed a sign or a clue. I wasn't built for that kind of pressure. My focus should have been on her, but it was on a rabid monkey relentlessly clawing my back. That's also the day I found an AA group. If nothing else, it worked for the fear of returning. Beth and her boyfriend were camping for a long weekend, but they got separated on a hike. Grady claimed they were only apart for just a few minutes, but when he walked back to join her, she was gone. The trail didn't diverge at any point, and everyone she knew agreed that she wasn't the type to wander off. Her partner believed a tall, deformed man took her, there were several times on the first night when they heard rustling nearby. They assumed it was an animal, but each time they tried to discern the source, it stopped, like someone didn't want to be found. That night, Grady crept out of their tent to relieve his bladder and saw a dark shape standing several feet away. It was so thin, he thought it was a tree, especially with the awkward angle to the protruding limbs. Then, it bent drastically near the base and leapt into the trees. The man possessed enough sense to not investigate, but when he later relayed the events to Beth, she disregarded it as a dream. After enjoying a normal morning, she convinced Grady to go to that fateful hike. He hadn't meant to walk ahead. She was next to him moments before, and thinking she stopped for a photo, he turned back right away. Unfortunately, it was already too late. Obviously, the police thought this entire story was fabricated 
If there was any way he could have known about those other cases, I'd think the same. But these people were from Florida. They weren't locals who happened to know a few stories. And they damn sure didn't hear this on the news. It was a miserable two-week search before search and rescue left and four more before the Anderson family flew home. I'll never forget the sound of the mother's wails. I heard it in my sleep, and not in a metaphorical way. Her cabin was close enough to literally hear it. That's when I got serious about my training. Maybe there was nothing I could have done, but if there was a chance to help prevent the next one, or even help it, then yeah, I was ready to get off my ass. Cue the training montage. I worked harder than I ever had in my whole miserable life. The funny part is, that's what got me past the worst drinking urges. I don't think the cravings will ever fully stop, but I experienced entire days without temptation. By August, I felt like a real park ranger. I was trusted to work without supervision, and my co-workers no longer saw me as Eric's screwed up little brother. I was part of the team. Life was too good. I should have known disaster was coming. On Friday, August 13th, everything went to crap. I think the date was coincidental considering how often it happens, but you never know. It was my last two weeks living at the park, and if I didn't find an apartment soon, I'd be back with my parents, which is obviously not ideal. There's a kitchen in the welcome center where we have lunch, and that day I ate with Eric and Terry. She's a lifer and could fill a book with all the strange stuff she's seen. The main reason I didn't have an apartment yet was laziness. The research alone is a long, tedious process. I avoided it by asking if anyone knew a good place to rent, and surprisingly, Terry did. It was a small house only ten minutes away, but the landlord was leaving town the next morning and wouldn't return for three weeks. Instead of living with my parents for a week like a reasonable person, I was an impatient pea brain. The world would end if I didn't immediately go get those keys, and as usual, Eric went out of his way to help. He was scheduled in the welcome center with Terry, but she agreed to cover for him. When we finished the last task, I was an hour ahead of schedule, but before I could feel too relieved, our radios crackled to life. There were multiple reports of a bear near Campsite C. They wanted us to go investigate, and if that was my worst delay, everything would have been fine. We drove to the location, figuring the animal was long gone, but couldn't risk tourists crowding one for a selfie. After scanning the area, we left the trail and advanced slowly. We only needed to ensure it wasn't loafing nearby. It made sense to spread out, but there was no more than 15 to 20 feet between us. Plus, I glanced over often to match his pace, and it was never difficult to see him. Not until he vanished, that is. I still don't understand how it happened. How can you be there one second, and then completely gone the next? I called his name, but there was no answer. Bare forgotten, I walked to the last place I saw my brother. I had always felt safe at work, like rangers were off limits to the misfortunes that fall upon our guests. We're only here to restore order afterwards. A maintenance crew, if you will. But when my eyes fell upon the void left by Eric's absence, that illusion crumbled. It was foolish not to radio for backup. I ran blindly into the forest without caution nor care. It was a wonder I didn't disappear as well, but I went like my only hope was to find him immediately before a report solidified the event was real. Deeper and deeper I barreled through the woods ripping my clothes and scraping my arms in the process. I mistook my shock for reason and continued screaming for my brother. 
I'm not sure how long it took to reach the clearing when the strange snowman rock, but seeing it was like waking from a trance. I had no clue where I was. The full weight of my situation sank in, and my stomach lurched painfully. Eric was likely dead, our ATV was abandoned at Camp C, and I would return alone, beaten and without an explanation for anything. Even if other rangers believed me, I've seen firsthand how badly the police need closed cases. That's when I learned the radio was dead and my phone was in the ATV. When something genuinely terrifying happens, the resulting fear is so intense that the possibility it could grow worse is unimaginable. It can always be worse. That much, I guarantee. Wandering aimlessly is the worst thing you can do when lost. Unfortunately, it's hard to stay put when your world is ending. I tried retracing my steps, but nothing looked familiar. Eventually, I rounded a curve to see my path blocked by what I thought to be another strange rock formation. It was big, and trees grew around it to form an almost hidden alcove. Had I approached from a different angle, it would have been invisible to me. There was almost a hypnotic quality. It reminded me of something, but I couldn't quite place what. I was so consumed with identifying this foreign yet familiar shape, I didn't realize my feet were taking me closer. My knees went weak as I saw only part of the formation was rock. The rest was flesh. The realization only came as its top half suddenly stood to its full, breathtaking height. Before it was merely crouching behind the boulder, now it was staring into the depths of my very soul. I could feel it inside of me. My limited reserve of composure evaporated as I fled into the forest once again. The urge to look back was intense, but I resisted. With a loud, guttural roar came the clear sound of flapping wings. The image of that thing soaring above was enough to keep me going well beyond my normal limit. I didn't notice the familiar surroundings until I emerged onto a trail near E-Camp. I was quickly spotted by a fellow ranger who informed me it was almost 7pm. That's when I noticed how low the sun had sunk and how close I was to being lost out there in the dark. Eric was still missing, obviously, and our search efforts were already underway. I was forced to recount my story to the police before speaking with friends. Despite what they suspected, the evidence was only circumstantial, and I was asked to not leave town. Mr. Chavez, my boss, believed me and was kind enough to let me keep the cabin while I waited for the other place. My parents were an absolute wreck and allowed a cabin while the search continued. Everyone put in an extra show of effort just for them. Watching mom suffer is the hardest part of this madness. If she loses me too, I can't think about that. None of this concerns them anyway. The parts you, whoever you are, need to know happened after I finally made it home that night. Well, Saturday morning, technically. The unexpected knock at my door was timid but frightening. It froze me in place while I imagined that creature waiting on the other side. Had Terry not called out, I would have not moved. It had started to rain, and flashes of lightning hit the sky. I invited her in and fetched a clean shovel. She dried off while the coffee brewed, and we talked for hours as the storm raged outside. Not only did I recount my story, but she told me much more about the disappearances than Eric had. I'm not sure if he had known or not. It's possible he didn't want to scare me more than necessary. Maybe it's a testament to the selfishness that I only cared about research when it concerned my own brother. But it never occurred to me before that moment. 
Terry showed me more subreddits, YouTube channels, and podcasts than I could count. She explained something people referred to as the missing 411. I'm going to do my best to pass knowledge on to you, though there's not enough time to read every piece of evidence I've uncovered over the last several months. The best I can do is point you in the right direction, but hopefully anyone who hears this will decide to stay the hell away. If one types in missing 411 into Google, a plethora of films and documentaries appear. A cursory glance leads one to believe these are fictional horror stories. If you skim a few articles, it starts sounding like some grand-scale human trafficking ring. But if you're willing to take a deep dive, you'll see something much more sinister rises to the surface. To put it simply, monsters, or as some prefer cryptids, are real. If you can't accept that basic fact by now, there's no point in you even listening to any of this. You can't look at the missing 411 as a whole. That's a rookie mistake, full of false leads and deadly misconceptions. Yes, as records of the missing are gathered from across the globe, there are many commonalities. But this is not a singular monster or mystery with a singular answer. It's a collection of thousands, probably millions. Every case must be considered individually to determine what's at fault. It is common for large forest and mountain ranges to house multiple creatures. Whether this is a skimwalker, a wendigo, a dogman, or as in this case, a vetti, it's vital to prepare for the right creature. Please understand, those are just a few examples. It would be impossible to list all the known cryptids. That's why the best course of action is to avoid them completely. Damn, I'm almost out of time. I must tell you about the vetti before it's too late. Terry and the other lifers were only able to identify it two years ago when she found one of the missing. She was alone in a remote area of the park when it happened. Some kids left their trash behind and a chip bag was tangled in a bush just off trail. When she retrieved it, she noticed candy wrappers a little further in, so she got that too. Then she saw a water bottle, and it wasn't until the following soda can that she realized how far away the litter had taken her. Realizing her mistake, she turned back to see Jason Fuller, a ranger who disappeared six years prior, blocking her path. He was injured and filthy, yet not a day older. Terry struggled to avoid the word zombie, but that's exactly what it sounded like until she relayed their brief conversation. He claimed to have escaped captivity and was trying to convince her to return with him so they might help the other hostages. Terry said pure malice exuded from him in waves. Too frightened to refuse, she asked him to lead the way. The thing wearing Jason's skin gave a sick, evil grin and walked past her. She held her breath as this thing's rotting stench wafted in her face, and the moment his back had turned, she fled. The sound she describes coming from him was eerily reminiscent of what I had heard hours before. She was barely able to make it to her ATV before he was on her heels. She reported the incident at base camp, and the old-timers filled her in, just like she did for me, except she had provided a missing link in their information. Knowing what hunts, you can be the difference in life and death. That night, 27 men went into the forest. Only 16 returned. But Terry was told she wouldn't see Jason again. There are hundreds of cryptids with information available, but we got stuck with a rare one. Most monsters are born as what they are, but Vetti are created. They begin as humans, when someone suffers unimaginable anguish, the type bred from years of brutal torture or a life of enslavement. They become consumed with fury and hatred. When they are finally granted the sweet release of death, their souls are doomed to wander the earth as vengeful spirits. 
they know nothing but the desire to share their endless pain with others. And that pain is like catnip to harpies. So harpies are real, but I don't have time to make this a double creature feature. You can research those for yourself. Information on what the harpies do after locating the spirit is vague, but whatever it merges with or transforms to, the result is a vetti. These things exist purely to cause misery. They should be avoided at all cost. Destroying one is extremely difficult, but bearing a few exceptions, they normally hunt alone. Their bloodlust isn't the most dangerous aspect of these creatures. They can do much worse than kill. No one is sure of the commonality between victims, but on rare occasions, such as with Jason Fuller, the corpses are possessed. I know my brother is dead. That's why I keep studying and searching. I need to confirm Eric's body isn't being used, and to put whatever I do find out of its misery. If I die in the process, so be it. But I'm taking that thing with me. If I can take it down with hollow points, I'll let fire take care of the rest. I have a shovel, two cans of gasoline, plenty of ammunition, and a few blades for good measure. If I don't make it back, I'm sorry. I wish I had been a better son and brother. Posted one hour later. Sorry to worry anyone who heard that unusual message before. I was rehearsing for a play. Everything is fantastic here. Please come for a visit and let me show you around our beautiful park. Remember, ask for Nate. I've lived in this town all of my life. I know all the weird traditions that come with living in a place as remote as mine. But nothing explains what's happened at our deer park. I used to come out here most evenings during the pandemic, park up by the base of the hill overlooking the sanctuary and just immerse myself in nature. I was always mindful of the distance I had to keep from the deer, particularly during mating season, and it wasn't like the deer didn't know what a car was. These were in their own reserve, sure, but the trail cut right through their vast fields, and they'd grown accustomed to seeing cars all manner of times in day and evening, which is what made the situation much more unsettling. Starting last week, a sign was put up on the entrance gate to the park, impossible to miss as the car slowed and the tires rolled over the metal grates. With it being the late hours and very few cars on the road, I decided to stop and read it in full. A polite notice to our valued visitors entering the Oboro Nature Reserve. Our deer are exhibiting unusual behaviors, and we are politely requesting you observe the following guidelines in place as to best protect yourself and the well-being of our deer. 1. While the park is open 24 hours a day, we are recommending visitors do not stop their cars during observable grazing periods and on midsummer nights. You are welcome to drive through and observe from a distance, but please do not slow down or stop. 2. Should you be slowed or stopped at any other time and the deer be curious by your vehicle, act calmly and do not speed up. Let them inspect you and judge you as a safe passerby. If they begin snorting, that is your cue to leave. 3. There have been reports of deer standing on their hind legs and remaining idle in the fields. These rumors are a fallacy. Please do not pay attention to them. 4. 
There is a black stag that holds dominion over the western herd. His antlers are sharp and his stride is impressive, but do not attempt to approach him. Please pay him the respect you would normally and do not stare at any of the females in his harem. He will charge you. Bucks are not friendly. 5. Deer remember faces. They can recognize you from a distance and will verify your smell as you get closer. Listening intently the entire time. There are many of them and only one of you. You would do well to mind that. 6. Lastly, no matter what salacious rumors have been propagating amongst the community, the deer are not congregating in the dead of night. Deer are social animals that sleep and graze together in a herd. This is normal. The deer are acting normally. Drive safely. Keep your doors locked and have a lovely drive in the Aboro Nature Reserve. Strange, right? The notice wasn't your usual steel sign with carefully embossed wording. Rather, it had been hastily marked up and nailed to the wall adjacent to the welcome sign, as if in a hurry. I'd not heard any sorts of rumors around town, and nobody had complained about the deer park at all. We're a population of maybe 2,000, so it's not very difficult for a word to get about. Still, I had my routine and intended to stick to it. Some of the info was valuable for newcomers. There was indeed a large buck who paraded the western herd. His name was Jojo, and I fully believed he would gore anyone who outstayed their welcome or got too close. Beautiful specimen of muscle and authority. He ensured his harem would never be straying too far from him, and he seemed to be borderline obsessive about making sure they never went across the eastern side where the large swaths of trees were at. In fact, I'd observed him on multiple occasions actively nudging or ramming younger males away from the split in the road and back to safety. On the rare occasion that a member of the herd crossed the line, he would refuse to acknowledge them and actively keep them away from entering back, as if they were banished. As I drove through the archway, I'd realized I had not seen many deer in the eastern section of the park. Looking out my window and staring at the makeshift forest to my right and a burning question coming to the forefront of my mind that didn't leave as I reached the hill overlooking both sides of the hill. Where are the rest of the deer? It was, to say the least, unnerving to sit there and try to enact my ritual of riding under a clear night when there was a strict absence of the herd where they should be. I tried my best to focus, but something was just burning in my mind pulling my eyes back to look at that same spot, time and time again. Eventually, I decided that I needed to get some fresh air and take a better look, satiate my curiosity, and then, with my mind at ease, I can get back to finishing my blog. The air is humid when I step outside. No breeze and the stars are out on full display. Thank goodness for no light pollution in the countryside. I leave the engine running, and walk to the barrier my car is parked in front of, leaning over and taking a pair of binoculars I bring for slower days when I want to see the deer in better detail. As I direct my vision to the eastern herd, I see something darting in the tree line. It's quick, hairy, and seemed to move the second my binoculars motion toward it. Even a deer shouldn't be that spooked, especially from this distance. My joints seize up and I dang near drop the binoculars when I hear a familiar snorting from behind me. I turn and see Jojo, standing 15 feet from me, just by the rear of my car, and his eyes gleaming in my rear lights. His head is low, 
and his antlers are thick, sharp, and aimed at me. In that moment, I don't know if he was going to charge and whether I should be fighting for my life or not. Instead, I do as I was instructed and stay still, not making sudden movements as he snorts again, closing the gap between us slowly. As he gets within five feet of me, he rears his head up. I see the most baffling expression on his face for a fleeting moment. Fear. Something ripples through the eastern forest, and birds begin flying away in droves. Some of the deer herd in the western area are circling something, and Jojo immediately bounds down and out of sight to control the chaos. I waste no time getting in my car and driving down after them, keeping the doors locked, the windows open a crack, and my speed at a decent crawl. As I come along the embankment that connects to the road, I see Jojo running full sprint towards another deer. He knocks the rival over and contorts the body as it skids across the grass and falls into the trail just ahead of my car. I know I'm not supposed to, but I stop the car and wait. In a choice between breaking the rules and breaking my car, I choose the former any day. The western herd deer under Jojo's command are gathering behind him, making horrific shrieks of terror. Jojo strides up and bows his head again in front of the still-contorted deer, antlers on full display and dripping with black blood. It was a clear threat. Do not come back here if you value your life. I started wondering how I'd safely get this deer out of the way, or if I could mount the grass on the other side and go around it. When I saw something horrific unfold in front of my eyes, the body twisted itself around and the limbs snapped to reset themselves. The head still cracked at an ugly angle, bones sticking out of the sides as it got into its shaking legs. Then it screamed. It sounded as if its lungs were filled with blood, a horrible muted cry of anguish that backed up every other deer but Jojo. I don't know what was keeping this thing standing, but it let its head flop lazily around as it carefully backed away onto the eastern side of the reserve before bounding into the tree line, as if nothing were wrong. My rational mind chalked it up to the adrenaline and instinct to survive, but it was impossible to shake the feeling that something was entirely wrong. I carried on driving as soon as the deer was out of sight, not looking at Jojo or the others as I carried on down the trail. For the remaining few minutes I felt unseen eyes staring intently at me until I crossed the threshold and back into civilization. I'd never been more grateful to see other humans. Or my bed. Something about the whole incident just took everything out of me. I was drained of all of my energy. As I slept that night, I dreamt that I was a deer alongside Jojo, frolicking in the herd and grazing peacefully. But as I cast my eyes upward to the sky, a bitter chill on the wind, I saw the moon bathed in an almost purple plume, a strange light cast onto the land and noises rustling from the woods opposite. I don't know how I knew this, but something in me instinctively knew we were not supposed to go there. I saw shapes begin to emerge from the trees and that same horrible shriek rang out again as I woke up in a sweat. I leaned forward to catch my breath and grab a glass of water. As I changed positions to reach for my nightstand, I swear I heard something running up the trail to my house. I was probably still half asleep, maybe just imagining it, but that didn't make it any more unnerving. I decided it would be best to drive out the next night and confront my concerns head on, take the bull by the horns, or the deer by the antlers. If I'm not going to sleep soundly, then I should use my time wisely and document what I'm seeing, maybe pass it to the rangers in the morning, right? When I drove back out there last night, the atmosphere was vastly different. 
A mist was enshrouding the trail, and most of the deer on the western side were huddled together, shaking and staring intently at the other side of the nature reserve. I couldn't see Jojo anywhere. Strange, I thought. Alpha males patrolled their herds dutifully. Why wasn't he here? I parked up at the usual spot, making sure he wasn't around. I pulled out my binoculars again and stared at the eastern area, the clouds beginning to part as the moon shone through. There was movement all along the tree line as shapes began emerging one by one. I think it took my mind a moment to process what I was seeing. I'd finally seen the deer on the eastern side. But they were wrong. Very, very wrong. Standing on their hind legs and taking confident, awkward steps, they marched out of the trees with their heads craned to the sky. All of them emitting that horrible sound like their heads were being held under water as they screamed. It reverberated in my ears and made my skin break out in goosebumps. There were dozens of them, maybe a couple of hundred. Some were dragging a structure with them, others hauling a writhing shape I couldn't quite see. They congregated in a small huddle, the center of which was obscured from my vision. I looked over to Jojo's herd and saw the fear in their eyes, so many of them shaking with their teeth bared, a primal fear we humans have largely lost in the safety of being the dominant species but this night showed me we were not as powerful as we think we are. As the huddle broke away and began walking towards the edge of their field, I saw what they had been huddling around. Jojo. He was still alive but barely moving and breathing. His eyes glazed over. When he began to come to, he started shrieking like a fawn. It was unnerving. They dragged him to the structure, a primitive set of steps, and hollowed out a hole in its center, coated in a thick substance on the sides just large enough for Jojo to be thrown into. I watched these things, these not-deer, use their front hooves to hoist him up into the hole, his screaming incessant the entire time. They stood around it, their necks cracked as they stared at the moon and shrieked. I looked up with them, wondering if what they sought was up there in the skies, a kind of primitive god for these creatures. I should have known better, of course. Whatever god these deers prayed to, it didn't reside up above. No, no, no. It lurked deep below. A low groan called out in response. It possessed the same blood-filled lungs these monstrosities had, and Jojo's deer huddled closer together at its roar. Jojo had stopped moving, his crying completely gone as the not-deer fell silent and formed a circle around their altar, snorting in unison. It grew to a fever pitch before something began dragging Jojo from beneath, ripping at his limbs and pulling until a horrific squelch indicated the top had separated from the bottom. The hole spurted out blood and chunks of deer as the not-deer celebrated, danced in the rain, and feasted on the pieces. One final roar rang out from the unseen creature. It shook the ground, and I felt my balance waver for just a moment, steadying myself on the car. I know I should have booked it out of there, but I was desperate to understand what I was seeing. Rationalizing that perhaps this was a bizarre art piece, maybe a protest from some sort of animal rights group or even a bunch of edgy satanic teens. But the rational voice in my head grew very, very quiet when I grabbed my binoculars to look again. Every single one of them were staring up at me, emotionless, black eyes fixated on my position. I didn't wait any longer. I drove out of there at a breakneck pace, not looking at either side of the park on my exit and near coming off the road with the lack of traction. As I got to the archway, my tire smashing against the grate, I'd inadvertently attracted the forest ranger on duty. He pulled me over and walked up to my window, 
a friendly smile on his face. You know there's a speed limit there for a reason, right, son? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I got a little spooked is all. I smiled back. Nerve shot to hell, he raised an eyebrow. You didn't break one of the rules now, did you? Oh, no, I kept to them. It's just, well, Jojo got attacked by the eastern deer, and I don't think he's doing well. It was just a shock to take in. I figured telling a half-troop would be best. Couldn't exactly say what I thought I'd really seen, could I? That's so. Well, they make their choices carefully. We don't know much, but we do not want to interfere. This is how it's always been. Animals have strange practices. You get how it is. But so long as you didn't look at them, and they didn't look at you, you're fine. Deer remember faces, after all. Thanks for visiting. Drive safe. He smiled again and tipped his hat before walking off to his station. My blood ran cold. I couldn't get those words out of my head the entire drive home. But so long as they didn't look at you, you're fine. I've not stepped outside my house since that night. I live in a remote part of the village and while I enjoy my privacy, it's been a hotbed for strange noises and unsettling emotion. Everywhere I go in my home, I feel like I'm being watched by those same vacant eyes. What happens now? What happens to those they look at? I can't get their eyes out of my head. And I can't sleep. I can't sleep at all. This isn't going to end until I figure out what they want. I wish I had more for you. I wish I could tell you more. I wish I could tell you what the not deer were, what they prayed to, why they sacrificed, what the ranger knew. But there's so many unknowns that it makes my head spin. It's just like being deep in the woods. So many twists and turns, you never know which is the right path and which is the path to death. You never know what danger lurks behind every tree. I don't know what the deer are doing. I don't know what is going on at that park. But if you value your life, you'll stay far, far away from it and whatever monster they're praying to. There's something wrong with the deer on our nature reserve. They've started standing up. I have been a private investigator for most of my life. I feel it important to tell you, at the earliest juncture, what I do, why I do it, and the unspoken rules of engagement when revealing information to the masses at large. I've seen far too many inscrutable types just pulling stories out of their ass for a quick buck or completely disrespecting the names and memories of those they were paid to investigate. I won't be doing any of that. Not when what is going on concerns all of us. My name is Wilson. I'm a new HPI that takes most of my appointments online and with very little face-to-face -face contact. Not just because of the current social climate, but because I like to be on the go when I'm working. I live close to the Rainbow Springs State Park in Central Florida. It's a great place to visit for your mental health and it keeps me fit, so you can imagine my surprise when a job comes up directly linked to that park itself. If you're unfamiliar with the missing 411, it's a book series by David Polites chronicling the sheer volume of missing persons cases in national parks across the United States. People who vanish in short time frames without a trace, some found inexplicably far from where they started without any logical explanation for how they got there, and bodies left in conditions that make your skin crawl. Florida doesn't even crack the top 10 for total missing persons, at least not officially. On the back channels, however, 
there's a lot more to go by. Historically, young people have wandered into the park when drunk, high, or just downright horny with a partner and either gone off the face of the earth or found dead much, much further than where they started. My first investigation into the park came when an irate husband was adamant his wife had been cheating on him and wanted me to tail her on one of her midnight secondments. The guy was rough around the edges, but he paid me well, so I obliged. It didn't take long for the spouse to go wandering and sure enough, she met in the parking lot with the husband's sister, looking giddier than a foodie in front of an all-you-can-eat buffet. I took the info back to the husband and in a complete 180, he simply chuckled and said, what can you do? I'll file for a divorce and get my stuff. Thanks, man. He paid me extra for my troubles, and I went home, treated myself to an extra large takeout, and forgot about it. Two days later, I got a call from my colleague in the precinct. The husband was found sat in a boat, naked under a blanket and drenched in blood, sobbing like a wild man. The rangers asked him what had happened, and he said, It wasn't right. I should have been enough and now I can be. Before they could clarify, they realized what he was wearing. The bowie knife cast aside in the boat, and the cuts on his arms. It was the skin of a woman. His sister. When he was questioned, his sanity clearly waning, he smiled and told officers, The Baron of the Woods has her now. He's keeping her safe until I'm ready. He was found hanging in his cell before he could be brought to trial. A bloodied message left on the wall. The Baron provides. That one took a while for me to get over, and to this day, I don't like the skin on my chicken. Ugh. I've had a terse conversation with my contact over at the PD, who gave me a polite but firm talking to about the confidentiality of the case. Reminded me I'm just a PI, and once I'm paid, that's the end of it. What you hear, what you see, it stays in the parks with us. Got it? He looked serious. Deadly serious. It didn't suit him, and while I didn't fully buy it, I wasn't a fool. I placated him with a few drinks, and we forgot about it all. That is, until the Pine View field trip. I'd been tasked with observing and investigating a counselor who was suspected of being actively high on the job and dealing to the students. So, knowing they would be off grounds for the school trip, I once again tailed. The middle school trip had a group of 22 students that went into the park one summer for a weekend of bonding, fun activities, and memories to last a lifetime. 18 would emerge with trauma that would stay with them for the rest of their lives. I was camped up a ways back and scouting for any signs of the counselor either being high, showing withdrawal, or offering it to the kids. It was becoming obvious that there wasn't anything of the sort so I instead decided to keep tabs and relax with a couple of beers, enjoying the night air. According to the witness statements, it started on the first night. A group of five friends were in the tent closest to the embankment where a large swath of trees that led for miles was situated on the opposite side. The youngest, Dylan, complained repeatedly of splashing coming closer to the tent as he was trying to sleep. None of the others believed him and convinced he was just trying to scare them and told him to sleep it off which he did until it happened again and spooked the second kid named Bryce. The other two, Mike and Grayson, calmed them down and told them not to complain to the counselor as they liked the spot. The witness sleeping with them, Danny, said he couldn't hear anything and thought they were playing a stupid prank. By the second night, however, 
things escalated dramatically. Danny claims he was awoken by the sound of splashing outside and muffled groans. He looked around and saw Dylan was out of his sleeping bag. Worried he may have fallen into the water, Danny went outside into the darkness to call for him. Danny claims he saw a figure in the shadows, maybe waist-deep, that was beckoning to him with one arm bending at a weird angle. Danny didn't move and called out to Dylan again, at which point he says he heard Dylan's voice, but that it was weird, like someone doing a really good Dylan impression, but off. Something overcame Danny, and he took a step back as three other shapes rose out of the water, all beckoning with their arms bent at odd angles and calling his name in some sort of off way. Danny says he screamed and ran into the tent to wake the others, but the bags were empty. At this point, I'm awake now, in my little campsite overlooking, and I can see Danny running to the cabin, screaming as people rush towards the shallows. Dylan, Bryce, Mitchell, and Gray were never found. The only thing that showed they stepped into the shallows at all were some clothes, and most disturbingly, arms that had been left floating in the place where Danny spied them. After that, I stepped up my research into the local legends around the park and disappearances that hadn't gone on public record. Brick wall after brick wall hit me before I caught a break. Someone had heard what I was doing and looking into what went on in the park, and I received an email. The email my assistant forwarded was titled, Disappearances in State Park. Help. Dear Mr. Cooper, I hear you have been taking cases for those who go missing in the park, and I'm hoping you can help me. My name is Marco, and I'm writing you in hopes that you can help me with something that has long plagued my family. I'll get straight to the point. Every one of my children has gone missing when they turn 18. I'm a proud father of six, two girls and four boys, a busy household at one time. I'm sure you can imagine. There's Michael, 24, Peter, 22, Yulia and Thomas, 21, Jonas, 17, and Yana, 15. All my children besides Jonas and Yana are missing. Mr. Cooper, and all of them were last seen heading into the Rainbow Springs State Park. Jonas's 18th birthday is coming up and my wife and I cannot bear the thought of losing another. I realize how far-fetched this must sound to you and you undoubtedly have your concerns, but if you are at the very least willing to meet with me, I will explain further. Please, our family can only take so much turmoil. We need help and there's nowhere else to turn to. Yours faithfully, Marco Baldoni. I blinked and made sure Dolly, my PA, hadn't sent me spam by accident. She confirmed she had not. I reread the content of the email three times or more before doing some research into the park itself, knowing full well that all state parks have varying degrees of missing people, but never hearing of multiple siblings. Scouring the articles, I could only find one on the eldest son, Michael, from six years ago. Providing minimal information, save for an appeal and a shot of him with his family, a tall, fair-skinned kid with messy, curly black hair that stretched over his brow and dangled in front of his eyes that were hidden behind thick glasses. A cheeky smile as he stands arm in arm with his other siblings, proud parents, standing behind him at a family ceremony. I don't know what it was, but something in the photo tugged at my withered heartstrings and my afternoon schedule wasn't exactly packed so I decided to meet the family for a coffee and hear them out. I had no idea how much this case would haunt my dreams for years to come. I drove up to the Baldoni household and immediately knew I was dealing with a grief-stricken family 
broken beyond repair. The lawn was barely kept up. Hedges were jutting out. The neighbors murmured fervently to another as I trudged up the driveway to the house. Not so much judging as they were silently looking on with pity. One word repeatedly being picked up as I reached the door. Cursed. Marco answered the door before I could even wrap my knuckles for a second. He was disheveled, frantic, and above all else, tired. The man I saw in the photos was overweight, salt and pepper curly hair, and a wide grin showcasing the pride in his family. The man in front of me looked 15 years older, frail, balding, with a permanent grimace as if bags under his eyes weighed his whole face down. Ah, detective, please come in. He opened the door wider, and the distinct odor, which permeated my nostrils, really hit me strong. But I had been to far worse places, and followed with a smile as we sat down in the living room, a place that had clearly become a shrine of sorts to their lost children. Photos of the kids in various stages of their lives littered every piece of furniture from the fireplace stand to the coffee table. If I'd looked for long enough, I'm sure I could have traced each child's milestone from birth to disappearance in the photos. Newspaper articles and trinkets. Mark sat down as one of the children brought in some lemonade and sat next to him, arm on his shoulder reassuringly. I take it this is Yana? I asked, staring at the young girl, trying to gauge any information I could without asking. She seemed to be in good health, tired like her father, but much more steadfast, though that could be chalked up to her age. He nodded, and she introduced herself, a soft smile breaking across her face. It's nice to meet you. My dad says you're here to help find out where my siblings are. Marco interjected, almost like a trained reaction. Find out what happened to them, Yana. We know where they are. His hands fell into his lap and his entire body language dropped further. He'd already resigned himself to their fate. I took a sip of lemonade and took out my notepad. Why don't you just tell me where this all began, Marco? What happened with Michael? Marco's eyes widened at the mere mention of his son's name. His lip trembled, but a reassuring squeeze from Yana kept his resolve. He nodded his head and got up, looking at a series of photos on the mantelpiece. Michael was our firstborn, a truly gifted boy with computers. He was remarked as a prodigy from a young age and entered a scholarship. We immigrated here when he was four, and you can imagine the issues we faced from the outside world. So our pride in him was immeasurable, but never to the point that we pushed him too hard. We just wanted him to be happy. He sighed and continued. But Michael was the sort to expect too much from himself, and it frequently resulted in him locking himself away in his room if he didn't achieve perfect scores or an experiment didn't turn out the way he wanted. He started researching into ways to help broaden his horizons and deepen his understanding of how things worked. That led him to some research which completely consumed him from the age of 17. Marco picked up a photo of Michael's graduation, tears staining his cheeks. My brilliant boy was obsessed, barely spoke to us in the lead-up to his 18th birthday. If he wasn't working on his experiments, he was out taking long walks until God knows when. We couldn't chastise him when we didn't know his return, and we just thought he was going through the usual issues a boy his age does, so long as he took some mace and kept his phone on. We let him have his freedom. I see. Well, parenting is a tough journey, and he was your first. You're bound to make errors in judgment, Marco. It's not your fault. I gave him a reassuring smile. 
He seemed like he wasn't the cause of Michael's downfall, or disappearance. That much was clear. He returned the smile with far less enthusiasm and continued. The night of his 18th birthday, he packed his things up and came down during movie night to speak to us. It was like the old Michael was back. He was practically glowing, and I was so shocked at this, I didn't even question the positivity. When your son has barely said three words to you for a year, and then suddenly wants to engage in long conversations, tell you he loves you and hug you, well, you just take it for what it is. Marco sniffed, his voice shaking. What a fool I was not to notice the signs. Michael waited up until we were asleep before taking the car and driving to the national park. The car was found parked up without an issue and no sign of Michael beyond entering the visitor's gate. The guard said he seemed like a normal kid, but with a determined look about him with a large backpack on his person. They never found a trace of him, detective. With that, Marco sank down into the couch and wrung his hands, full of shame. I knew that look, and I knew I had to ask the obvious, painful as it might be. Marco, was Michael suicidal? Did he have any mental health problems? His eyes met mine and the hurt in them was apparent. He'd been asked this before. Everyone has said the same thing to me. He must have been depressed. Typical foreign family putting pressure on their bright boy to give them all an easy life. He was a shut-in, so it's no wonder he killed himself. Journalists, neighbors, teachers, state troopers, and police officers all think the same fucking way. He slammed a fist down as Yana stared at him with tears in her eyes. My boy was loved. He was cherished. We never had any signs, and we encouraged communication, and we still do. We were a loving family. We talked things out, and we did not shame our children for failing. He didn't. He couldn't. He pressed his head into his hands and softly sobbed as Yana comforted him. I'm sorry, Marco. We can discuss your other children another day if you'd prefer. I realize this must be painful for you. I had to ask to eliminate the possibilities. If they've already gone down that road, then I assure you I won't do the same. You have my word. I leaned forward and put a hand on his forearm, hoping it would help him. He nodded and composed himself. So... It went, Peter, the second oldest, always looked up to Michael and idolized him. He was more artistically inclined and focused diligently on his poetry skills, wanting to be just as good in his own craft as Michael was, you know? The two found their respective differences fascinating, how one could be so focused on the creative arts and the other on science, but covering for the other's weaknesses. I dare say they were more like twins than brothers at some points. Peter... Worried for Michael during those dark days, but he kept the family together with movie nights, poetry recitals, and would leave small sticky notes around the house with fun messages to keep our spirits up. As Marco smiled, I looked around and saw the fridge, washing machine, kitchen door, and every other appliance still had this distinctive yellow sticky note with it, and small, carefully worded messages affixed to them. But all that changed when Michael disappeared, I assume. I pressed, scribbling more notes down my pad. He nodded and asked Yana for a stiffer drink. She hesitantly obliged and walked to the kitchen. He became inconsolable, especially after the first few days of searching yielded nothing and people very quickly drew conclusions of suicide. He was like me, you see, passionate and fiery. He refused to believe Michael would do anything of the sort and would get into all manners of confrontations with anyone who suggested otherwise. Teachers would kick him out of class for cussing out his peers who made unkind comments, and he would eventually get suspended for breaking the nose of a bully who mimicked a hanging notion when referencing Michael. 
After that, he began writing darker focused poems and placing them on his front door. They made us unsettled, but we let him express himself. I took them all down after he disappeared though. That was too painful. Except for, he pulled out a crumpled note from his pocket as Yana placed a bottle of vodka on the table and he poured himself a shot, downing it without hesitation as he read the note aloud. It calls to me from beyond the veil, a screaming, writhing, terrible wail. It wails and cries in a language not meant for man, but I will search for it in the only way I can. It lays in the grave of giants, hidden from view. It bears the soul of my brother, suffering renewed. Do not fret, do not cry, for I will return. The hearts of my family no longer will yearn. For the Baron of the Woods told me a tale. Keep my promise, and I will return from the Vale. It's strange to admit, but I felt a bitter chill run through me as he finished. Was I really to believe a teenage kid wrote this? It sounded almost... coded, like he'd read too many old gothic horror novels. But something within it rang true. A message within a message, maybe. Marco gave it to me shaking hands and continued. After that, he too left for the park. He was never spotted by the guards and he had gone on foot. A passerby said they saw him trudging in very loose clothing for the time of year when he went missing. They were concerned he'd freeze but said they felt uncomfortable approaching him. That it seemed like he was in a trance of sorts and thought he may be on drugs. They reported it to the ranger but nothing came of it. Marco sighed and poured another shot. The second of my children went missing and my heart broke even more. Again, no trace. But this time, there was no conclusion of death. His case is still open. What a joke. A hollow laugh left his body before he necked back the shot and wiped his lips. Apologies, but I need this to talk about what happened next. You understand? I do, but I hope you don't plan on getting too intoxicated. It'll make my job hard to find them. Please, in moderation. I felt awkward telling a grown man stricken with grief what to do in his own home, but this was still a courtesy call, and I wouldn't get very far if he was plastered. He nodded grimly and signaled to Yana to leave the room. Dad, I want to be here to help you, especially with Mom being... She protested, but he silenced her with a wave of his hand and something in another language I didn't understand. He kissed her and sent her away for a few of these tense moments. She doesn't know the extent of the twins' issues, I must confess. Not all of them are missing. We do know where one of them is. His deadpan, bitter response catches me off guard and I sit forward, noticing something is off. Alright, I'm listening. What happened? He visibly shudders before continuing, getting up and pacing the room as if anxious. Julia and Thomas were twins, as you know. They were inseparable and like many twins, I'm told, they had their own habits and languages. There were so many times where they felt disconnected from the rest of us, content to spend their days planning trips together or doing their own thing. But as time went by, they became too reclusive. Maybe that was always the way it was going to go, one sibling following the other. But even when you see a car crash coming, you can't quite help but be devastated by its impact. Marco shakes his head, perhaps trying to rid himself of the mixture of guilt and pain, if only for a moment. They began communicating exclusively with one another after Peter left, becoming more and more hysterical in the lead-up to their own disappearance, but this was different to the others. I could see the morose expression grow from his face to his body language, and he grabbed something from the desk and tossed it in front of me. 
pouring another shot. We know where one of them ended up, he flatly added as my eyes darted down to the paper from a few years ago. Local teen found dead in unusual circumstances, splashed across the front in gaudy font. A photo of a cordoned-off section of the park next to it. The already tense mood grew worse as the article hung in the air for a few moments before Marco put his finger on a section of the map, and for the first time since we met, I understood why other PIs had either turned down this case or come up with nothing. Marco was pointing to the cave high up on the cliffside. Thomas was found inside there after people nearby complained of a foul smell and saw a bird scavenging nearby. He'd been missing for two weeks by that time, but he'd been dead less than that. A kid with no athletic ability, climbing equipment, or survival skills managed to stay alive and get himself up to such a high spot, six miles into a national park. He stared at me, incredulous. That's not possible, detective. My boy could not have done that in his own. Someone took him up there. The penny was in the air. So you think something has been luring your kids to the park for some reason? I pressed, trying not to sound insulting in my tone as I put pen and paper down for the first moment. He knocked back another shot and put another piece of paper onto the table, a map with directions and a piece of Peter's poetry. From the blackness he calls to me, a cacophony of agony and impropriety. To the old land, the baron beckons me forth. My twin dances beyond my gaze, her soul enraptured within the darkest maze. I am powerless to resist his siren's call, for he speaks in a voice of my brother, and I do not know how to defy my heart, for it is broken like no other. The map showed directions to an area not marked on the forest trails. It was shoddy, hastily drawn, and with unusual markings that Marco pointed out were definitely the twins' own language. I stare for a moment as Marco says what I'm thinking. Not something. Someone, detective. The penny drops. How did Thomas die? Where was Julia? Exposure, so they say. I've never been able to even spend any time with the body beyond a rushed verification. Julia was nowhere to be seen. Not a trace. He sighed and leaned in. Yana doesn't know we found Thomas. She still thinks he's missing, and I cannot bear to tell her otherwise. You may have noticed the mother is nowhere to be seen. This is because the grief broke her heart. I couldn't tell her. It would push her over the edge. You understand? I leaned back and took a breath, running through the information in my head. When did Jonas turn 18? Last week. He's already behaving strangely, and we've kept him in his room for now. No matter how hard we try, they find a way to either lower our guard or leave when we are asleep. We must sleep sometime, and Yana is in no state to overpower her brother. I do not know what else to do, detective. Something is killing my family, and I don't know why. He puts his face in his hands and sobs as Yana comes back in to comfort him. I decide this is a good moment to take a breather and head for the hallway. The dusty smell of the house making me congested. He's wrong, you know. I spun around and saw Yana standing in the hall, a defiant look on her youthful face. What do you mean? Do you think it's something else? Mental illness, it runs in our family. I try to keep positive for Dad's sake, to give him something to hold on to, other than grief, but... It took Mother, it took Michael, Peter, and the twins. It's got a hold of Dad, and one day, if I'm not careful, it'll have me too. My family hasn't ever been tested for anything, and my father is convinced that there's some curse on the family from the old country. 
but I think they're just sick, detective. Please don't make a promise you can't keep. That's all I ask. I don't want to lose another family member. She walked back inside and left me to ponder my options. I could leave a grief-stricken father in limbo and advise they see a doctor, or... I looked up the stairs, a single light on in the bedroom, and a pang of guilt in my chest. Or I could commit to the job and see where it takes me. Call me a fool, but I said yes. I told Markle to let Jonas out and I tail him. Much as I wanted to know more about the kid, I couldn't risk him recognizing me and giving me the runaround when it came to tailing. It only took a couple of nights for Jonas to find his way towards the park. The kid was fast, I'll give him that. Tall and lanky with summer wear on made him adept at traversing the underbrush and traipsing along the trail, darting left and right as he made his way deeper and deeper into the forest. I thank all of my weekends doing Wii Fit training for being able to keep up with this kid half my age. Eventually, I came to a clearing and damn near collapsed over myself in a heap. I wheezed and took a moment to recuperate, hoping I could hear for something nearby to tell me where he was and praying. I didn't go back to the family empty-handed. Sure enough, after a few moments, something cracked in the direction to my left. Swinging around, I saw a figure that had been watching me scuttle off. Thinking it was Jonas, I chased after and called out explaining that I just wanted to help. No reply. Typical. This time, I pushed through the stitches and the god-awful wheezing cursed my love of Chinese food, and powered on to chase after Jonas until the trees overhead began bloating out in the sky. Branches stretching over into the canopy that kept the warm moonlit glow from reaching me, turning the entire trail into darkness. I'd lost my way long before I decided to stop and look around, unsure of where I'd come in and where I was going. Silence permeated the space around me. It was unnerving. I pulled out my phone and put the light on to find my way. And I swear to God, if I had the ability to scream over the wheezing, I would have. It was Jonas, crouched beneath me, staring up with wide, manic eyes and smiling at me. He was bouncing on his tiptoes like a child at a birthday party. We stood there for a few seconds before he leaned behind me and giggled, leaping back into the dark and chanting something that seemed to come from all directions. From the blackness he calls with glee, a reunion for them, a reunion for me. Brothers, sisters, and mother attend. A time for broken hearts to mend, for they congregate in the grave of Tusk, and so I too shall join them as dust. For the Baron of the Woods, debt is paid, the Baldoni bloodline has been slain. I turned and saw what he had been looking at. To this day I have no earthly idea how something like this could be in the park, let alone anywhere on this planet. I'd somehow suddenly been standing on a small cliff edge, overlooking a sparse pit strewn with bodies and bones a mass grave known as an elephant pit. It was said that when elephants got to a certain age, they'd pair off from the herd and die in these vapid open lands. Their bones, all that remain after decades. But these were humans, some well-preserved while others were nothing but bones. All of them still clothed and chucked carelessly into the unforgiving soil. Someone put them there, I breathed. Turning around to look for Jonas, the chanting growing distant as I ran into the direction of his voice. No sooner had I started running did I catch something under my feet and stumbled down, toppling over head feet first until my head careened with something hard, and I blacked out. When I came to, I was being attended to by the park rangers in a familiar area of the park. Jonas blanketed nearby and looking as if he was on death's door. What, what happened? 
I asked, the ranger furrowing their brow as they stared into my eyes. Their colleague coming over. Concussion. He's not going to remember. They said quietly in the first ranger's ear. They nodded and the air of concern returned to them. You went off trail. We thought he'd stolen from you or something. Found you both passed out at the bottom of a nasty dip. One false move and you would have been lost to time. Looks like someone out there has your back. Better thank the Baron when you can. He smiled with a wink. Thank the Baron? What? I blinked. My skull felt as if it were splitting open, and my head spun. He grinned again, and everything faded to black. It would be some time before I was able to make sense of that night's events. Jonas was brought home and had no memory of ever going into the woods. Said he just felt compelled to go for a walk that night, and that was it. Marco was overjoyed to have his son back and thanked me profusely, as did Yana. When I had taken a moment to have some quiet time, I asked him about a debt his family may have owed. He looked at me as if I had awoken the devil, and his jaw grew slack. In the old country when I was born, it was said I was a sickly boy. This was during the war and my parents could not bear any more loss and bloodshed. My mother told me that my father took me into the ancient woods and asked the Lord there to bless me and that he'd pay whatever price was needed. I always thought it was just some old country folklore, but he shuddered and took a moment. I think deep down, I knew what this was. But, who would believe it? I couldn't bring myself to say I did, because I still don't know what I saw there that night. I didn't want to invite more trouble into this poor guy's life, so I left my card and told him to give me a call if anything unusual popped up again. That was two months ago. I still have headaches on occasion, and I don't go into the park for fun walks anymore. It feels wrong now. Sometimes, only sometimes I feel this unceasing desire to go off the beaten path and into the darker areas of the park, to seek out the truth of what I saw that night, and that feeling scares me to death. Hello, Swamp Dweller. It's strange to finally write this after months of meticulously crafting the perfect letter with which to grab your attention, but sadly those hours were in vain. It's impossible to express the entirety of what happened without including some rather embarrassing details, but I can't keep this to myself any longer. Hopefully, you can see past my mistakes and consider reading this to your viewers. There is no defense for my intentions, but... I would like to conclude this preface by saying that I am a different person now. My name is Parker, and I'm a 21-year-old manic-depressive, bipolar college dropout. I'm also a snob and an all-around asshole. This isn't a cry for help, it's an explanation. You see, I've been coming to the swamp since 2018. It's one of a few pleasures in my pathetic life. Any tale where someone suffers more than myself is a treat, but here, I don't know, there's something special about the atmosphere. I've nearly convinced myself I'm visiting a real place. Did I cross a line from a loyal fan to obsessive psycho? Probably, but listen to my whole story before passing judgment. Eventually, listening wasn't enough anymore. I wanted to keep the show going daily, to hear my words shared with everyone here in the swamp. The problem... I was a boring nobody, and apparently so was my family. There wasn't a single haunting or a stalker among us. Finally, I decided to create a work of fiction. But they were dull, and even if you read them, they'd be immediately forgotten. No, 
If I was going to lie, it was going to be something memorable. After trashing a dozen or more drafts, the entire world stopped. My sister died, and I experienced real pain. The previous depressions were nothing compared to the new torments of daily life. Leslie was walking to her car after work when some shitbag just grabbed her. But that's not the story I'm here to tell. It's only the catalyst. I've always wanted to die. Not in a I-can't-take-it-anymore-dramatic-way, in a this-is-pointless-and-I-don't-want-a-passive type of way. After Leslie, it became the bad kind. Wanting justice kept me going at first, but when the shitbag went down shooting, that was gone too. There's a calmness that comes with the decision to die. The pain finally stops because it doesn't matter anymore. It felt like my mind was clear for the first time, and I understood exactly what I wanted to do. Opening a new dock, my fingers danced over the keys as words practically wrote themselves. In minutes, three perfect paragraphs introduced myself as an adventurous hiking enthusiast. I explained my love for this channel and my lifelong desire to visit Akigahara, Japan's suicide forest. It was far from finished, but a beautiful beginning. Next, I bought a plane ticket, a round trip to support my claims. I got a passport and packed my bags. The plan was nearly flawless. I would write of my daring adventures, and when the audience was captivated with my unbelievable discoveries, I would deliver the clincher. The returning tomorrow will update soon. Of course, that was never going to happen. Later, when my body was discovered, well, you get the idea. There was a chance details about my true personality would surface, but most people want the mystery. They'll overlook a few discrepancies in the story if it's good enough, and I thought mine was. I researched the area to ensure no claims contradicted the legends too much and found the subject fascinating. In 2003, a record-breaking 105 bodies were discovered. In 2010, over 200 suicide attempts were made. Due to the drastic increases, they won't release the numbers anymore. In the year 864, Mount Fuji erupted, and where the lava flowed, Akigahara eventually grew. Halfway up the mountain, one can see the forest from high above the treetops. The breathtaking view is the reason it was named... Yukai, or Sea of Trees. Unfortunately, the surrounding villages were poor and starving. It was common for families to abandon their elderly in the woods and call it mercy. Many of them committed suicide rather than face weeks of starvation and exposure. This brings us to the Onyo, a vengeful spirit capable of causing physical harm. Many claim these malevolent beings are responsible for most, if not all, of the forest deaths and disappearances. Even experienced hikers tend to lose their way. Now, the public trail ends with no trespassing notices and warning signs. Those who are determined to die simply venture forth and do it. If they're unsure, they tie a ribbon in the trees to guide their possible return. Sometimes... Locals volunteer to perform suicide checks and know what it means to find one of those trails. In case you are wondering, I took camping gear, but only to support future claims. We can skip the Swank Hotel, weird toilets, and actual trauma of public transportation. I'd rather jump to where fantasy and reality diverged. Once I learned what it was like to travel in a crowded city, I knew multiple trips were out of the question. 
Instead, I took everything on the first day. Finding reception at the bottom of the mountain seemed preferable to another round trip. Plus, it fit my narrative better. I was just camping, but things were so scary I came down to send this. At least, that's what I told myself. It wouldn't matter why I went back afterwards. People always make dumb decisions in those situations. Let everyone speculate I forgot something, or maybe I was forced. The important thing was to steer them away from suicide. I don't care what went in its place. Onyal, Yakuza, aliens, pick your poison. From the moment I arrived, things were more difficult than anticipated. The insects were drawn to me like they smelled a foreign delicacy in my blood, and the weights of my gear increased with every step. When the trail split in two, I stopped for a much-needed break. The signposts were in Japanese, but a passing elderly couple speak English well enough to help. They exchanged worried glances after noticing my tent. I insisted my interest only lay in camping, but it was doubtful that they believed me. I'm still in awe of the forest's beauty. It's amazing what nature can do when the trees aren't cut every 10 to 20 years. If you leave the trail, even before the forbidden zone, it's practically guaranteed you'll get lost. I stopped for a few more breaks along the way and reached the end in roughly two hours. A small barrier with numerous warnings offered no challenge in preventing my entry, but that's what marks the point of no return for so many. My first glimpse revealed tattered ribbons of all colors and sizes blowing in the breeze. I worried my line would be too easily seen if it started within view of the trail, but then noticed a uniquely shaped tree in the distance. Halfway there, a blue, uncut ribbon could be seen stretching into the dense foliage ahead. It inspired a combination of fear, curiosity, and regret. Turning back, I found a new landmark to the right. When sure no one was nearby, I started my own red lifeline. It was a solid hour before I found a suitable place for the tent. It was the lightest available, but as the clouds gathered overhead, the choice felt regrettable. Not checking the weather is a perfect example of the basic things I overlook in laziness. I set up between two huge trees and hoped the heavy rocks above me would help against the wind. There was nothing to do against flooding except hope it didn't happen. It wasn't until resting inside that I heard the sporadic patter of raindrops and realized the trees blocked most of it. Luckily, it never rained hard enough to be more than a nuisance, but the soothing sounds lulled me to sleep. Nightmares are a common theme in the forest legend, but that's true for most haunted places. Regardless, bad dreams are ineffective threats against those of us intimately familiar with night terrors, as long as we realize we're sleeping. One moment, I was resting comfortably. The next, footsteps were crunching in the distance. I rose to look outside, fully expecting a bear or a deer. My ears couldn't discern how many legs it walked on, just that it was heavy. The sound stopped instantly when I unzipped the flap. Taking a few cautious steps forward, I scanned my surroundings. It was then that I realized Akigahara was a serial killer's paradise, but it was too late for new worries. Besides, I was there to die. If someone wanted to help, why complain? I turned and felt urine stream down my leg. Standing not five feet behind my tent was the elderly couple from before. Except now, they look like zombies. They weren't ghostly apparitions but solid bodies. Their faces were chalk white and peeling. 
The woman's neck had jagged red slashes, and her husband was missing a portion of his skull. With a sickly rotten smile, the man, in perfect English, asked, Are you sure you're only here to camp? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? We're wonderful listeners. As he spoke, they advanced from both sides, and I stumbled backwards. Oh, don't be frightened, dear, his wife added. We only want to help. We have a grandson your age, or we did, until he left us to rot. The sorry, selfish bastard. Her voice became deeper with every word until it no longer resembled a woman's. I retreated faster and soon fell flat onto my back. Twisted roots and rocks jabbed painfully into my skin, but there was no time to stop for the stars dancing in my vision. The couple's approach grew louder with each step, and their cold iron grips could come at any second. I flailed, desperately propelling myself backwards, but my clothes snagged in several places. Finally, when I thought my heart would fail from pure terror, I jolted awake with a loud clap of thunder. Outside in the cool, fresh air, I noticed my clothes were soaked in sweat. Once changed, I started a fire and wondered at the possibility of staying awake for the rest of my life. Having one of those dreams at night was something to avoid. Phantom pain lingered from the imaginary fall. But as a lifelong hypochondriac, I have learned to ignore most aches and ailments. In a blatant act of rebellion, my brain showed me awful things waiting in the forest, creeping closer by the minute. I didn't care about the story anymore. I was trapped. If I fled in the dark, every branch would be fingers, every animal would be demons, and every cold breeze could be the reaper's breath. Shadows darted about in the corner of my eye, but I was paralyzed. The trance was only broken when a figure suddenly lunged into the clearing. I turned my head in time to catch a glimpse of a pale, angry woman before she vanished. Taking advantage of my regained mobility, I dove into the tent. I felt a cold certainty. That's what they wanted, but my anxiety grew in tandem with the darkness. Staying outside was not an option. I felt naked and exposed. Countless eyes were watching, waiting. But for what? The whispers hinted suicide but I wasn't ready to admit I heard them yet. Things were almost calm during the first hour. Writing seemed like a good distraction, but it was difficult to focus. It wasn't until accidentally dozing that I heard real footsteps. Several. The firelight cast tall, exaggerated shadows onto the tent, and they grew taller with every step. There were at least six, maybe even more. I thought they would force their way inside, but they circled me like vultures, Round and round they went, slowly, never stopping or talking, but occasionally they showed me things. I could hear, smell, and feel everything. Most husbands granted their wives quick, painless deaths before committing suicide, but sometimes they tried to survive out there. Either way, death always came, and the men were always furious when it did. Their rage and hate poured into the land, strengthened its curse with every fresh infusion of fury. What's interesting is how the same children who left them on the mountain were in turn abandoned by their own offspring years later. The Onyo never forgot, and their sons were greeted accordingly. The practice of abandoning the weak may have ended, but its victims remain and they hate us, all of us. The visions continued until all meaning of time was lost. My head ached and my eyes grew heavier with each passing minute. I had drifted off for only a moment when the sound of tearing fabric startled me.
inches away from my ear, a long black fingernail poked through a small hole, and I screamed in surprise. The finger was immediately replaced by a glazed blue eye. Gripped by panic, I leapt away from the tear, covered it with my pack, and sobbed as the circling footsteps resumed. I stayed that way until dawn, when all fell gloriously silent. There were no retreating footsteps into the forest. They vanished mid-stride as if never there. I opened the flap wide enough for a peek but saw nothing. The gray light of the morning filled me with renewed determination. It was imperative to finish my business before sunset, but I was no longer sure what that entailed. Not wanting to trust any decision made under duress, I reassessed my situation from the beginning. The real doubts began with my letter to you, Mr. Dweller. It was nothing compared to the nightmare of reality. After much soul-searching, the file went into the trash bin where it belonged. When I decided to visit Akigahara, no part of me expected to witness any form of supernatural activity. Now that I had, I would practically be a criminal not to share it with the swamp, right? Admitting I might want to live was too scary. That would mean returning to my miserable existence of everyday life. But it was easy.